I want to ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. And I just want to say, before we get started this morning, that this is, this is one of those messages that can be hard to hear. It is a, a message which weighs heavy on me as I've prepared this week and as I've studied this and even as I begin to, to preach to you this morning. And, and uh, while it is, as I said, a very heavy, a very serious message, I just want to encourage you to hang with me until the end, okay? Because while it is a very heavy, it is a very serious message, there is good news to come, amen? So, so stay with me as, as we um, dive into a, a message that I've entitled, Guilty of Murder, because I believe that is in essence what Jesus is telling us in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. He has just recently reminded us of the importance of the law. He has told us that he has not come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it, right? And then in, in talking about the fulfilling of the law, he has also told us of the reality that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That was a very serious thing for him to say. That was something that would have left his audience, you know, kind of bewildered and reeling for answers. And, and that, but that's what Jesus does. He, he confronts them in some of the misunderstandings concerning God's law as it applies to them and to their understanding of what it means to follow God, what it means to be a child of God, and what it means to be acceptable to God. And so Jesus challenges personal righteousness, and he brings clarification of the law's requirements. In this next section, beginning with verse number 21 and on through the end of chapter 5, Jesus is going to review six commands from the Old Testament, six commands that the people were familiar with and their interpretation, beginning with this most familiar of commands, thou shalt not commit murder. And so this is where he begins to confront self-righteousness and to convict us of the reality of our sinful hearts. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. 
Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Father, we come before you in humility, recognizing, Lord, the implications of your word toward us this morning. And I pray, Father, that as I speak from your word and seek to proclaim your truth, that you would guide me, that you would help me to proclaim fully your word, that you would apply it to my heart and to those who are listening, that you might continually conform us to the image of Christ, and bring us to a greater understanding of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I don't think it's too far of a stretch for us to recognize that we have a tendency to think higher of ourselves, to think more of ourselves than what God's Word actually allows. We like to think we are better than we are. People don't often have a difficult time admitting that they're sinners. Everybody recognizes to some degree that they're sinners. They, they've, they've made mistakes. They've fallen short. People don't have a difficult time with that. What they do have a difficult time with is recognizing and admitting that because they're sinners, they're deserving of God's judgment. That's a little harder pill to swallow. And so what do we do? We, well, we try to justify ourselves. We say, well, I'm, I'm not that bad. And, well, what does that bad mean? I mean, what are we comparing ourselves to? Most of the time, we begin to compare ourselves to other people. But when we compare ourselves to the Word of God, We are confronted with the reality, not only are we that bad, but we are deserving of judgment. And Jesus in this passage, and having just reminded us of the reality that our righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees and the the scribes, without which we can't go to heaven, and then what does he do? He He just heaps condemnation on us, right? But what is he doing? He's trying to help us understand the impact of God's law on our life. He's trying to help us get to the end of ourselves in order that we might turn to Him. That is all that Jesus is trying to do in this passage, is to confront us with the reality of God's law so that we recognize not only have we sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard, but that the wages of our sin is death, that we are deserving of God's judgment, and it's not what we want to hear, but it is the foundation from where we come to understand our need for the gospel. If you don't come to the place where you recognize that you deserve God's judgment, you will not come to a place of salvation because you haven't recognized your need for it. You have to recognize the reality of what God's law 
what position it puts you in. And so Jesus is confronting not only his hearers, but us as well as we read this passage and as we study this passage, he confronts us with this reality of our own self-righteousness and of our need to be convicted by God's law. Now, the struggle against self-righteousness, that isn't something that's unique to to the generations represented here in this room. It's not something unique even to the last 50 or 100 years. The the issue of self-righteousness goes all the way back to when Adam first sinned against God in the garden. And ever since then, mankind has sought to justify himself before God, to say, I'm not that bad. And yet, God's Word has continually sought to point us to the reality of our insufficiency to meet His standards in order that we might call out to Him for grace and mercy and depend on Him for our righteousness rather than trying to establish a righteousness of our own. We talked a little bit last time about the scribes and Pharisees and the way that they interpreted the Mosaic Law and how they had added all these rules and regulations in an attempt to do what? In an attempt to keep the law, right? They, they, they broke the law down. They said, if we're going to keep the law, then we need to do this, and we need to do this, and we need to do this. And while they've, what they've done is they've added to God's law, they've also diminished God's law because they've made it about something they can do rather than recognizing it's meant to point them to the very thing that they can't do, which is justify themselves. And so Jesus is trying to help them and trying to help us recognize the reality of self-righteousness. What the scribes and Pharisees were doing, it was ultimately a power play against God's word that they might appear more righteous than they are. But Jesus has already confronted us and told us that their righteousness was insufficient. And if our righteousness doesn't exceed theirs, then neither is our righteousness sufficient. And so he goes on to explain himself and to help us to understand the purpose of the law to reveal sin and point us to our need for a Savior. And he accomplishes this in three ways, by revealing the deception of self-righteousness, a declaration of guilt, and a directive for reconciliation. Let's look first at the deception of self-righteousness. And, and just so you know, the first couple of verses are going to take most of our time. The last four verses are going to, we're going to fly through really quickly. So as we're moving along and we've only covered two verses and you see we've still got four to go, don't worry, okay? It, we'll, we'll get there, all right? So Jesus begins to, to talk to us and, and to confront us with the deception, which is self-righteousness. Look with me again at verse 21. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. So Jesus begins to uncover their self-righteousness by reminding them of what they had been taught. Right? He says, these are the things that you have heard from times of old. It could read either that the ancients were taught or that the ancients taught, but either way, this meaning is the same, from from. From a long time ago, the, the elders have, have been teaching and have been taught, what? God's Word, that you shall not commit murder, right? That is the, 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 one of the most well-known 
of the commandments. You ask somebody to name the Ten Commandments, probably the first thing they're going to tell you is you, sh- you shouldn't kill, right? Thou shalt not kill. That's going to be the first thing that comes out of their mouth. Thou shalt not kill. And the usage of kill in some trans- is in some translations, but the reason why I use the New American Standard and, and the phrasing it uses, thou shalt not commit murder, because that's the intent of the command. Obviously, throughout the Old Testament, God justifies self-defense, killing in self-defense. He justifies killing in just wars. He justifies killing for capital punishment. So there are a sense in which God allows and permits and directs the killing of people. But the sense of the commandment is to not commit murder. That is, in anger, to respond and take the life willfully of another human being who is an image bearer of God. As image bearers of God, we have intrinsic value in the sight of God, and therefore we are special before Him, and He alone has the right to give life and to take life. And so He has told us that it is not our prerogative to decide when somebody should live or die because we feel offended by them or because we don't like something they did or for whatever reason, apart from violations of God's law, should we take on this responsibility. God intends to exercise the divine right of giving and taking life, and so he tells us and reminds us of the command, you shall not commit murder. But did you notice the second part of what he says in this verse? When he gives us the results of violating God's law, it doesn't so much sound like what God's law says anymore, does it? Look at it again there in verse 21. He says, he says therefore, the ancients have, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. You ever read that anywhere in Scripture? That if you commit murder, you're going to be liable to the court. Or to be guilty. The word liable means to be guilty before the court. No. This was the, the tradition that has been passed down by the scribes and the Pharisees. That in interpreting God's law, they have taken it upon themselves to establish themselves as the authority by which people are going to be accountable. That they compromised the courts of the Jewish people, and they were the ones that would decide what was righteous and, and what was not, and what was deserving of death and what was not. And so if you committed murder, you were ultimately accountable to who? To them, right? That was what the tradition said. The tradition said that you became accountable to a council of people rather than to God. There was, there was nothing in, in the traditions of the, of the elders that mentioned the, the fact that God's, that God's law and God's holiness and, and people's image bearers of God were being slain. There was nothing about God's decreed judgment against um, those who had committed murder, but it was simply that there was a guilt before the court for those who committed murder. This very clearly begins to reveal the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They have elevated themselves to the position of God. To being not only the interpreters, but the dispensers of God's justice. And so... They were deceived in thinking that they had that right. Now, don't misunderstand. There is not, it is not my position or the position of Jesus that the courts don't have a role to play 
in issues where God's law is broken. The issue was he was confronting them with the reality that they had placed upon themselves authority that was ignoring God's word and elevating themselves above God's law. When someone thinks that they know better than God's word, than what God's word clearly teaches, or when they think they have the authority to say who is, who is not, or who can be right with God, they've fallen under the deception that comes from self-righteousness. The scribes and Pharisees that Jesus was rebuking were not, I don't think that they were necessarily intending to overstep boundaries. They were pursuing righteousness, but on their own standards. They were trying to uphold God's law, but again, according to their own judgment. So they were not submissive to God's law, but here's the reality. People do this all the time. They understand that God has a standard, that God's word says certain things, and, and they seek to, to some degree, to understand and to apply God's word, but only in as much as it feels proper or sounds right or meets their own judgment. And that's where they go astray. That's where they fall and pray to the deception of self-righteousness, to think that they have the authority to say what parts of God's law they'll follow and what parts they won't. We don't have that luxury. But yet they, again, not intending to overstep boundaries, many of them were just trying to follow God as they had been taught. The deception of self-righteousness can become generational because we follow the traditions of those who have gone on before us rather than subjecting ourselves to the very word of God. We find ourselves following after those things which we've heard repeated over and over and over again, but our theology has not gone any deeper or sought any more truth from God's word. And, and, then, and then comes about the warning that Jesus gave his disciples in John 16 too. Jesus warned his disciples, he says, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. There's people that genuinely believe that they're serving God, that they're doing God's will, that they're honoring God, when in reality, they're serving themselves and they've lifted themselves up in a self-righteous position to be the determiner of what is good and right and just. And they've not known the totality of God's word. And they've not known and been submissive to the things that God's word teaches. I mean, think about, think about the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul guy, formerly, you know, his Hebrew name was Saul, right? His Greek name was Paul's Hebrew name is Saul. Saul lived, lived a life, right? He was a Pharisee, right? Became a Pharisee. He knew the law. He was trained under uh, Gamaliel, or a rabbi. And, uh, and Paul, or Saul, he, he comes along and he sees what's going on with, with these people who are following after Jesus, this guy who's been crucified, who's been reported to be alive, and yet... Paul doesn't believe it, and he's like, man, we need to do something about these, these people who are proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, and, and he's going off. I mean, the, the, the Pharisees don't believe it. I don't believe it. And so what does he do? He goes off, and he begins to arrest Christians, and he begins to cast their vote against them when it comes time for trial so that they'll be killed. And he seeks to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he was serving God. When in reality, he was against God. He was deceived by his own self-righteousness until that fateful day when he met the risen Christ. 
Christ got a hold of his heart and transformed him and helped him to see the error of his way. Self-righteousness is a dangerous thing. And we live at a time when so many professing Christians supposed to know the mind and the will of God and they don't even know what the Word of God says. You see this all the time in the media, especially on social media, people making claims about how God feels about this and how Jesus feels about that social issue and this social issue. And in reality, the things that they say are either in contradiction to God's Word or ignore parts of God's Word. Just this last week, having a conversation in our family, and, and uh, we were talking about a, a particular YouTube video that came up, and this person was, was uh, essentially, supposedly a Christian YouTuber who was promoting, um, or saying, rather, um, concerning uh, uh, homosexuality, and, and pointing to an Old Testament verse and saying that there was nowhere else in Scripture that said anything about God being opposed to homosexuality. It's like, have you read the New Testament? No, I mean, but this is how it is. People, their theology basically is based on sayings that they've heard in, in bits and pieces of Scripture that somebody else has pointed out to them or somebody else has told them this is the only place that it exists and this is the only thing that, that God's Word says against it and you can't make the, act, the argument from here. And do they search at God's Word for themselves? No. They just have embraced what is essentially a bumper sticker theology and they have sought to make assertions about who God is and what God says about certain issues that fit their own perspective. That is the deception of self-righteousness. If you want to make an assertion about how God feels about a particular issue, you better have more than a bumper sticker theology. You better understand and know what God's Word says, not in some remote passage of Scripture that you've pulled out of context, but the whole counsel of God's Word. When we want to know what God has to say about something, we need to look at the whole counsel of God's Word. We need to look about, about what God has said about it in the Old Testament and what God has said about it in the New Testament. We need to look at what God has said throughout Scripture in the consistency of His revelation so that we will not fall prey to that deception, but so that we can be clear about what Scripture actually says. Paul warns his young pastor friend, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.7, he says, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. That is what we see day in and day out is people, they want to be teachers of the law and they have no idea what it says. I've heard it said that when you ask, what would Jesus do? You need to recognize that flipping tables and chasing people with a whip isn't out of the realm of possibility. But how do people use it? They use it in very concise and restrictive terms because they've adopted a theology and an understanding of God consistent with their own reasoning but not consistent with the totality of God's Word. 
point is, self-righteousness deceives people into not only thinking that they know better than others, but in oftentimes believing that their standing before God is better than it actually is. And that is a dangerous, dangerous position to be in. John MacArthur, in his commentary, tells the story of a notorious murderer named Two-Gun Crowley, who was captured in 1931. He had killed several people and at least one police officer, and after a gun, bo- gun battle with police, the police found a note on him that read, Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. Now, you read that from somebody who's a known murderer, who's killed a police officer, and you recognize immediately the absurdity of such a claim by someone who has obviously done people harm, that they would think themselves to not be that bad. But yet that self-deception is at work in many people's hearts, because while they think, while they've recognized they've done some things that are bad, deep down, they would say, I'm not that bad. But what does God's word tell us? Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Quoting from the Old Testament. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even Folks, we have to stop thinking about ourselves in terms about how we feel about ourselves, and we need to start thinking about ourselves in terms of what God's Word reveals about ourselves. None of us can truly claim that we're not that bad, and that's exactly Jesus' point here. For He not only uncovers the deception of self-righteousness, but He points to the declaration of our guilt before a holy God. Look with me at verse 22. He says there, But I say to you. He says, you've heard it said, you've heard God's law taught a certain way, now I'm going to give you the correct interpretation of God's law. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. This is a declaration of our guilt. I want you to notice, first of all, when we look at the the first thing that Jesus says here in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. That Jesus, in effect, has equated anger and murder. He says, you've heard it said by the ancients, by by those in authority, that if you commit murder, you're guilty before the court. He says, I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty before the court. What does that do? That's the same punishment for different offenses, right? He is equating the two things. The rest of the passage is not a progression of sin and punishment. It is a parallelism that helps us to see that anger is at the root of what leads to murder. And that anger in and of itself is a sin of the heart equal with murder. And this is Jesus' point in declaring our guilt. He tells us, he wants us all to see that the point of the law is not merely to direct us in knowing right and wrong. It's not meant to direct us towards 
holiness, which it is, but it has made us recognize that we can't get there on our own. And so Jesus seeks to explain the significance of the law. And, and the deception of self-righteousness, it causes us to examine our lives and say things like, I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not a murderer. And Jesus says, well, let me share something with you about the intent and the purposes of God's law, which says that if you're angry with your brother, you're just as guilty before God as a murderer. We tend to pit our experience and actions against those who see, who we see as worse than us and to justify ourselves by doing so. But Jesus reveals to us that if you recognize the purpose and power of the law, you see that it's not meant just to condemn actions but to reveal hearts. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says this. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. It's always about a heart issue. Sin is always about a heart issue. Now, is having anger in your heart the same as killing somebody? Well, in God's eyes, the sin is the same. In a spiritual sense, the guilt is the same. In a real-life sense, it's not the same, right? I mean, if you're angry with somebody and you refrain from killing them, that's not going to carry the same penalty for you as if you're angry with somebody and you actually kill them, right? There's going to, there's going to be punishment. There's going to be repercussions. There's going to be judgment that comes in a real-life sense when those things happen. So... Don't misunderstand and think, well, you know what, if I'm guilty of murder anyway, I might as well just go ahead and kill him. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. But in, but in the sense of our guilt before a holy God, we are just as guilty for harboring anger as we are for that person who has killed somebody. Your, our heart convicts us. And he goes in through this verse, he demonstrates to us by expressions of the heart that reveal murderous tendencies. The rest of the verses, as I said, it lays out those expressions revealing how anger leads to murder. I mean, we see basically a clear, a, a, it's said more clearly by the Apostle John in 1 John 3.15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. I mean, he just comes out, just rephrasing what Jesus said, but just making it clear in case there was a misunderstanding. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So as Jesus leads us through his reasoning, we are confronted with the truth of our heart's weakness and sin. And the recognition that while we may not have carried out the act of murder in life, we have harbored hatred in our heart at times, and according to God's standards, are just as guilty. Now, one point of clarification that I'd like to make is it is possible to be angry and to not be in sin. Right? I mean, we see Jesus had moments of anger in his life. 
there is the possibility of a righteous anger when it comes to being angry about the sins of other people. It's very difficult for us to carry out righteous anger because of our own sinful and weakened state, but it is possible. We also see in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul reminding us to be angry and yet do not sin. So it is possible to be angry and not to sin. When Jesus uses this word angry in verse 22, he says, for everyone that is angry with his brother, he uses a form of the word that is speaking of an issue that has settled in the heart and is controlling their emotions and their actions. That is the anger that he's talking about. Have you ever been controlled by your emotions? You ever allowed your, your, your anger to make you do something that maybe you wouldn't normally have done? That's what Jesus is talking about. That's the kind of anger that he's, he's not, not just you get mad, but you can deal with it and let it go and not respond in a way that's negative towards God. That's not what he's talking about this where it, where it settles in and it, and it just leads you in down, a, down a path of dark, dark thoughts. I think every one of us have at one time or another harbored hatred in our heart. We need to be careful about that reality, but understand that it is the establishing of our guilt because anger leads to expressions, and that's what he moves on to in this, in this verse. And he says, whoever, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, your translation may have the Aramaic word raka there. It says to him raka. And the reason why some translations leave it untranslated, there's not really a good English equivalent. It was a, an, an Aramaic curse word, essentially, for people who were seen as being worthless. And, and so good for nothing is how the New American Standard has translated it, but it's, again, it's not, there is no true English equivalent, but it is a, an expression towards somebody who is worthless. I'll just, just as I said, good for nothing is about as close as we can get to what it actually meant. It had to do with somebody's um, incapability or lack of capability to accomplish anything worthwhile. And so it was a, a slanderous type of word that was used against people. When you're angry with somebody, sometimes you call them names that reflect on their character. And and Jesus says, listen, he says, if, if you're angry, you can be guilty to the core. If you're angry such that it, you have this expression and you start calling names, you can be guilty before the Supreme Court. That is the Sanhedrin, the, the Council of the Seventy, the highest court for the Jews that they could come before. They, they, they would be guilty in the sight of the elders, that is. And then he goes on and he says to the next expression, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, that word fool is from the Greek word moros. Can you guess which word we get from that? But it is, it is a word in the, in the Greek that carries uh, the sense of not just being foolish in mind, of being unthinking, but also of, it carries the idea of being godless. It is a certain accusation of not only of foolish thinking, but of also of godlessness. And Jesus, again... These are not progressive sins with progressively worse 
things of guilt. guilt. Being guilty before the court, being guilty before the Supreme Court, and being guilty enough to go into hell. Guess what? What do they all have in common? Guilt. At the end of the day, it's guilt. You're, you're guilty in every aspect. And if you're guilty of one and before one court, you're guilty before the next court and ultimately guilty before the highest court. And that, that what he talks about there in the fiery hell, it's the Greek word Gehenna. And some of you have heard this before, but it's a reference to the valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem. It was a time, there was a time in Israel's history when the people were um, had turned away from God. They were worshiping other gods, and they went down into the valley of Hinnom, and they sacrificed their child or their children by fire to pagan gods, and they desecrated the land. And so when Israel, Israel was taken out of the land, when they came back, they knew that that's what happened there. And so they made it a perpetual garbage dump where they just continually burned their refuse. They continually burned their trash in this, in this valley. And it was, a, it was a real life picture. And Jesus used it um, 11 different times to speak of the reality of eternal torment. Because the perpetual burning in the valley of Hinnom where refuse was just consumed continually was a picture that the people could get their mind around for what eternal torment was going to look like. And he says, listen, we're guilty before a holy God. We're guilty and we are deserving of God's judgment. The various expressions from inward anger to the declaration of a fool along with the seeming levels of liability, again, not progressive, but rather parallels going all the way back to the equating of anger to murder that we see in the first part of verse 22. The whole point is Jesus is making us see the wickedness of our own heart and the guilt that is established by the decrees of God. We may think we're not that bad, but God's law convicts us as murderers. How righteous do you think you can be when God's standard of righteousness says you're guilty of murder. What kind of hope do we have in justifying ourselves? Zero. We are guilty. So having exposed the underlying problem in our heart, he continues to direct us toward reconciliation. He's told us of the deception of self-righteousness and he's given us a declaration of our guilt, but there still remains hope for us in this directive for reconciliation that he comes to in these last four verses. And there's, there's a lot here, but we're going to summarize it because, and this is the beauty of the gospel that comes forth and, 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 and really helps us to understand what our guilt needs to lead us to do. Let's look at, first of all, the directive for reconciliation. Look at just verse 20, 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. And this really takes center stage, even though the last two verses give a, a little bit more insight into what Jesus is saying here, but he's, he's telling us that we need to pursue reconciliation. What is the context in which reconciliation between us and God takes place? For the Jewish people he was talking to, reconciliation takes place where? At the altar, right? They have come to make their offering at the altar. They are bringing their sacrifices. They are seeking to make peace with God. And he says, listen, before you can make peace with God, you need to understand that you need to make peace with your brother. 
You need to make peace with your brother or your sister. Because how can we have peace with God if we're harboring some kind of self-justification in our own heart when we come into God's presence? And that's what he's saying. He says, if your brother has something against you, he's not necessarily saying that what they have against you is valid. He's not necessarily saying that, what they're, that, that you're actually guilty of doing anything. But the idea of reconciliation in these verses brings to us the, the reality that there's probably a little bit of responsibility on both sides of this conflict. And he's saying, you can't be reconciled to God if you know someone has something against you and you haven't done what you can to make it right. He said, because what you're doing is you're, you're trying to justify yourself. You're saying, yeah, I know they have this against me, but I haven't really done anything wrong. And so what is, what is that? That's self-justification. That's self-righteousness. And he says, you can't harbor self-righteousness in your heart and come before God and be right in his presence. We need to deal with our heart in accordance with God's word. We need to recognize that the place of reconciliation is in the presence of God, but as God deals with our heart, he is always going to lead us to deal with the relationships that he has brought into our life. Romans 12, 18 tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You can go and try and be reconciled, and we can't guarantee that they're going to want to be reconciled back, right? But as far as it depends on us, we're to try to be at peace with all men. We do our part. We recognize our role. And then we, and when we seek peace with them, that we might also have peace with God. But as long as we seek to justify ourselves, we will lack reconciliation, not only with others, but also with God. And lack of reconciliation always leads to discipline. Our guilt not only has a, it is important to our worship and our relationship with God, but it has an impact on discipline. And this is the last two verses. He tells us, make friends quickly with your opponent at law. Now this sets up a little bit different context. He's saying there's actual guilt that's been incurred. Okay, they're taking you to court. You're guilty of something, which comes out because he says, if you get to the court and it goes to the court, they're going to lock you away, right? So guilt has been established. So the issue is not any a, a two opposing sides needing to be reconciled, both having a share in a conflict, but this is you've wronged somebody and they're, and they're taking you to court because you're guilty. And he says, you need to seek to make it right. Again, reconciliation. But also being a picture, being a picture of the reconciliation we need with God. God. You see, guilt holds us hostage until the penalty is paid. What does he say there? He says, he says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. That is, when you've wronged somebody, you need to make reparations for what's going on. You need to seek to be not just to be at peace with them, but to do what's right before them to make those reparations in order that, that you might not have to undergo the penalty for your guilt. Now, if we take that and we understand it as also being a reference to the guilt we have before God and the prison that awaits us in eternity, we also have to recognize 
the reality that he says you can't get out of there until you pay the last cent. When will we have paid up our sin in an eternity in hell? Never. You, me, no one can ever satisfy God's wrath against your sin except for Jesus Christ. And this is why I said, hold on until we get to the end. Because the reconciliation that we're granted through Jesus Christ is so much greater than the guilt we bear in our weakness. The reconciliation that, that Christ has accomplished on the cross is so much greater than anything that we could have done to offend our God. We are not as good as we like to think. In fact, we're much worse according to God's judgment than what we normally want to admit. But the beauty of the gospel is that God knows the darkest part of our heart and he loved us anyway. And he sent his son to be a sacrifice in order to pay the penalty that we deserve. We are guilty. We are deserving of judgment. But Jesus Christ went to that cross in order to take your punishment for you. So that if you will believe in him and repent of your sins, you can be saved. You can be forgiven. You can be restored to him. You can have reconciliation. You can have freedom from sin. You can be freed from the bondage that comes from being caught up and held hostage by sin. God knows there's no way that we're ever going to keep his law. He knows that. So if we come up with a system by which we can keep it, guess what? We're not doing anything to honor God. We're only seeking to honor ourselves. We need to overcome self-righteousness and get to that place of spiritual poverty that Jesus began this sermon with. To recognize we have nothing to offer God. But to call upon his mercy and his grace to mourn over our sins and to trust solely in him to deliver us. It is by faith in Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of his death and the power of his resurrection that we are set free. If you've never dealt with your sin, or let me put it this way, if God has never dealt with you over your sin, He's ready, and he's willing, and he's waiting, and he will forgive you. If you confess your sin and put your faith in Christ, he will forgive. And not only will he forgive, but he will cleanse you, and he will adopt you, and he will make you one of his, and he will never let you go. He's ready. And if you have known the reality of conviction and that God has dealt with your sins through Jesus Christ, and even though you've harbored murder in your heart, I hope that this reminder today would lead you to a place of deeper commitment, renewed passion and love for the great gift of salvation granted to us through Jesus so that we all might together proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ and the power of his gospel so that he might be exalted among us
glorified through us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's a hard thing for us to recognize the depth of our guilt. Our tendency, Lord, is to justify ourselves. But Father, your word is meant not to give us a way out, but to lead us to the end of ourselves that we might call upon you. And Lord, I pray that you've done that in the heart of someone this morning. I thank you for the way you've dealt with my heart this week and reminding me of the greatness of your grace and the wonders of your love. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide each one of us as your children, as your servants, so that we might be made to look more like Jesus, that we might be more effective in sharing the gospel, helping people to understand the reality of guilt and the wonder of forgiveness. And may you continue, Lord, to teach us moment by moment and day by day for the glory of your kingdom and for the exaltation of Jesus' name. And it's in that most wonderful name we pray this morning. Amen. I want to ask you to stand with me. This time of invitation. If the Lord's leading you to respond in some way this morning,